0: Hello and welcome to the Polemical History Podcast, where we discuss history that sometimes borders on taboo. This is Tim Rudy.
1: And this is Anthony Blackwell. And today, Tim and I are talking about a relatively new and controversial player in the field of historical research, genetics, which appears to have evolved into its own historicist sub-discipline, that of genetic history. Today, genetic studies are increasingly contributing
0: to historical investigations, supplying data and interpretations on controversial questions pertaining to group and individual identity, migration, conquest, health, uh, kinship, uh, as well as technology transmission, and much more.
1: Indeed, it's safe to say that today human history and natural history have become intertwined. Right, and it was an aspect actually of our last show, our episode on the history of race, that we didn't get the opportunity to explore insofar as some people like to invoke genetics as an apparent neutral source of objective historical truth and debates about ethnic identity. By the way, in the time since we recorded that episode, Whoopi Goldberg found herself in hot water after commenting that the Holocaust wasn't about race. And if you're a token fan like me, Tim, you may also have noticed that online discussion about the highly anticipated Amazon series, The Rings of Power, has been surprisingly politicized concerning the ethnic composition of Middle Earth and the racial history of the fantasy genre. Race and ethnicity, it appears, are hot-button issues for both real and imagined worlds. Yeah,
0: um... I found that, uh, the Whoopi Goldberg controversy, especially discouraging actually, um, because it's yet another example of how kind of ignorant people can be on, on the internet and on TV. Um, I don't mean to say that Whoopi Goldberg is like, especially ignorant or a terrible person or something like that. It's just that, um, on the contrary, actually she, she comes off as quite a good person from what I've seen of her. It's just that, uh, You know, it it was just a little discouraging to see uh, people speak with such conviction on a topic they don't know very much about um, on a platform such as, uh, you know, nationally televised TV. Um, It doesn't, um, well, it doesn't take very much research, does it, on the Jewish people to find that Judaism is both a religion and an ethnicity. Um, And actually, Whoopi Goldberg should know that uh, because it turns out she's, She's actually looked into her own history and genetics pretty deeply. Um, her, her real last name is Johnson, um, but her, with her stage name, of course, being Goldberg, she has said, uh, and I quote, my mother did not name me Whoopi, but Goldberg is my name. It's part of my family, part of my heritage, just like being black. Um, on another occasion, she said, quote, I just know I am Jewish. I practice nothing, I don't go to temple, but I do remember the holidays. Okay, that's kind of strange. (laughs) Uh, She also said, quote, people would say, come on, are you Jewish? And I would always say, would you ask me that if I was white? I bet not, Uh, end quote there. So, um, yeah, she has, you know, she's looked into her own ancestry. She considers herself Jewish in some way. Um, Maybe Jewish people don't consider her Jewish, I don't know. Um, but uh, one account suggests that her her mother, uh, Emma, uh, born Emma Johnson, um, thought that uh, the family's original surname was not Jewish enough, you know, quote, not Jewish enough uh, for her daughter to become a star in show business. Uh, and researcher Henry Louis Gates Jr. actually found that all of Goldberg's um, traceable ancestors were black, right? So Whoopi Goldberg doesn't have any white ancestors. Uh, she had no known german or jewish ancestry according to his research um and none of his ancestors were named goldberg so who knows um maybe she grew up around a lot of jews in new york city or because uh she has some aspiration of becoming jewish i don't really understand it but it sounds to me like that she should have known that Ju- judaism is indeed uh, an ethnicity as well as a religion um speaking of ancestry didn't you recently send uh, your dna off to be tested
1: yeah, um, I received a 23andMe kit as a Christmas gift, and recently got my genetic ancestry results. So I've been thinking quite a bit about, you know, this role of genetic narratives uh, for the construction of individual identities. And we can talk about those results later. I'm sure we will. Um, I've also been on a bit of a prehistory buzz of late, and I'm currently reading Gene Mal's Earth's Children series of historical novels. Uh, what can I say? Some guys are interested in cars. I dig Neanderthals. With whom? I apparently share up to 2% of my DNA, as I discovered. Um, so genetic- genetics can reveal facts like that. Unfortunately, what I can't explain is the reason and circumstances why Homo sapiens and Neanderthals mated. And irrespective of all of that uh, Whoopi Goldberg uh, controversy, I was very pleased to see her reprise a role um, of Guinan on Star Trek Picard. I don't know if you're a Trekkie.
0: No, I uh, never Star Trek
1: guy. <laughs> so what's Guinan? Oh, she is this... Um, not a mortal, but very long-living, sage uh, lady who features in Star Trek Generation. Uh, she works on the Enterprise, and anyway, she reprises her, her, her role now, and I think she's in Los Angeles in, in, in the future, and Captain oh, wow. Picard meets her, and she's, she's always a bar woman. Oh, so know, she's,
0: right? not a- she's not an alien on it. She's she, a-
1: she's, she is an alien, but a very, very humanoid one. Humanoid alien, yeah. okay, interesting.
0: Well, uh, we're, it turns out we're we're both humanoid, mostly humanoid, but um, we both have Neanderthal DNA. Uh, but I actually am proud to report that I have a whopping 3.6% DNA. Um, and that's probably why I was thinking about it. It's probably why I beat you at arm wrestling every time, but that's a topic for another show. It's probably also why you've got
1: a weak chin and a sloping forehead.
0: It <laughs> could be. Could be. <laughs> um. Well, uh, anyway, in my test, I had mostly uh, Western European genetics, Northwestern European genetics, not really surprising because uh, my skin is white as snow. Um, but uh, no no Scandinavian at all, to my surprise. I think it's like in the family, there was some urban legend that one of our ancestors was uh, Norwegian or something like that, but apparently that's not true. Um, I also had a, a tad of uh, just a little bit of South Asian DNA, uh, India and Pakistan so that might explain why I enjoyed my trip to India so much. I was home again.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's interesting to to speculate on, on why that might be the case. Um, in recent years, molecular genetics alongside archaeology, which obviously studies material evidence and history, which studies written sources, has opened up an entirely novel approach to researching our individual and collective pasts. Um, so far, historical investigations using genetic data have been most common in prehistorical research. Um, It was first used in, as you said, Tim, studies of early human evolution and migration, a field labeled molecular anthropology. Uh, Combined with historical linguistics, um, this has been used to attempt to map such broad scale processes as, uh, let's say, the migratory movements of peoples and languages, uh, such as those from Africa in the Stone Age, the spread of agricultural technology from the Middle East to Western Europe, and also the peopling of the Americas from Asia, which controversially seems to have occurred earlier than previous estimates, and the same is said also about the peopling of Papua New Guinea. I think it's it sets those estimates back by like fifty thousand years. And you're fond of accusing experts of underestimating how old processes are, right, Tim? Yeah,
0: a mere a mere fifty thousand years. Well, wow, that's nothing. Um, no, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely one of my pet peeves. Um, I just don't I don't like how. I mean, intellectuals at large, but also uh, historians and experts. They often speak with like so much conviction about the past. A little bit like Whoopi Goldberg. Um, no, I'm <laughs> just kidding there. I think <laughs> they've done a little more bit more. Though. I think they've done a bit more, <laughs> more research in there. Uh, but uh, but we really, I mean, no matter how you slice it, we only have a few pieces of the puzzle. A very small percentage of the puzzle is uh, available to us, and we got to kind of use a lot of guesswork to fill in the rest. So I just think we have to be we have to be open minded and leave loose ends. Uh, even where we don't want to. Uh, I remember in high school reading that uh, um, anthropology teacher saying uh, Homo sapiens were about 150,000 years old, um, which is like strikingly accurate, like uh, yeah, 150,000. Anyway, um, I, I understand that archaeologists and historians were trying to sound like they knew what they were talking about, uh, but now it turns out they were way off, right? Uh, academics collectively uh, need to work on saying, I don't know, more often, <laughs>
1: mm. I guess they're only comfortable stating that which they have evidence for, uh, and they're not too different from scientists in that respect because they're dealing with material sources um, you know we're speaking more about scientists as opposed to traditional historians here um, and I'm sure if you were to ask one off the record, say they might be inclined to agree with you in fact
0: yeah yeah well uh, take the um let's say take the migration of uh, Asians to the Americas, as you mentioned before. Um, It's always the land bridge, um, the Bering Strait. Uh, During the Ice Age, humans walked across the frozen Bering Strait, etc., etc. Well, if Polynesians made it to Hawaii on little boats, I really don't see why uh, the first Americans couldn't have done something similar. Of course, there's no evidence for this theory, so it's fair to say there's no evidence. Um, But I think most archaeologists would just say, you're wrong. That didn't happen, right? So... um, What they really should say, I think, is like it's possible because it is definitely possible.
1: There's this uh, contentious paper. um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. It got a lot of traction in in the media um, and kind of popular scientific publications by Avid Chan and Vanessa Hayes, who are geneticists at the Garvin Institute of Medical Research. And it traces the origins of modern humans. to an area that's shared by Botswana Namibia and Zimbabwe in southern Africa, I, <laughs> shall I try to pronounce it? I'm afraid of, uh-huh. I'm afraid of mispronouncing it. The Mac Dadigadi Okavango <laughs> Wetland, to be precise. And I know i got a sugar mama, something like that. I know I'm butchering that. <laughs> <laughs> um, however, other researchers um, have called this claim far-fetched as the study is based on just a sliver of DNA from living people. And it doesn't account for the rest of the genome um, or DNA from ancient human specimens or fossils or stone tools or any other kind of cultural artifact, um, all of which suggest that humans arose much earlier and in a variety of locations, in fact. Um, For example, in 2017, researchers described 315,000-year-old bones from a Moroccan cave called Jebel Irhoud that are the oldest Homo sapiens fossils ever found. So 315,000 years, that already doubles the estimate you, you cited earlier that your anthropology teacher told you. Shortly after, a 180,000-year-old jawbone from the Massilia cave in Israel showed that humans ventured out of Africa far earlier than suggested. Um, in 2019, a 210 a thousand-year-old skull belonging to Homo sapiens was recovered from uh, Epidema cave in Greece. Um, complex stone tools have also been found at sites that are about 300,000 years old in locations as diverse as Morocco, as, as I previously mentioned, in Kenya, South Africa. And based on such finds, many scientists have abandoned the idea that humanity originated in any one part of Africa, and instead they think that the entire continent was our homeland. And this idea is known as African multi-regionalism. And curiously, in February of this year, Gil McVean at the University of Oxford unveiled in the journal Science a family tree of humanity giving an overview of two million years of prehistory and evolution, which he constructed using genetic data from thousands of modern and prehistoric people. And you can check out that visualization of relationships between ancestors and descendants in the genealogy of modern and ancient genomes online. Nice, two
0: million years, that's more like it. Uh, that's what I like to hear. More recently, um, more recently, though, population geneticists and biomathematicians have begun to study more uh, recent historical evidence, such as the Anglo-Saxon migrations um, and the population diversity of the British and Irish Isles, as well as the origins of the Indian caste system. Genetics have also proved instrumental in recent histories of epidemiology. For example, an exhaustive genetic study published in 2018 may have settled a long-standing historical question as to what caused the 1545 to 1550 coccallytsile epidemic that decimated uh, 15 million Aztecs. Can you imagine that? 15 million. Mm. Um, So it's sort of like a lethal form of salmonella. um, Salmonella enterica uh, that the Spanish brought from Europe. It's a question that's been debated for over a century by historians and which we are now able to provide direct evidence through the use of ancient DNA.
1: Yeah, so let's perhaps start by breaking down the potential of genetic history to inform historical analysis. Uh, According to historian of medicine and health, Monica H. Green, quote, the fact that history has come to be defined by breakthroughs made by scientists Rather than historians, as traditionally defined, signals a sea change end quote. Yeah, and a, a good change of that, I would say. Um,
0: but again, let's not put all our eggs in one basket. If archaeology and genetics clash, uh, that's a good thing. It means that we have to rethink what we used to take as fact, and thus sort of it creates an opportunity to learn more, I believe. So um, anyway, tell me more about the advantage of genetics though. Uh, what does it have to offer that archaeology and anthropology can't?
1: Um, Well, as I see it, genetics offers several advantages uh, for historical research, and it can be used to answer some questions that can't be resolved using only, let's say, document-based, you know, traditional historical or anthropological methods. So, for example, in the narrative of disease history, as in the case you just described, as well as in scholarship about the Black Death, um, or in other cases where there's, insufficient written historical sources. Um, It might also correct uh, facts suggested by traditional historical and archaeological evidence that's flawed uh, or vague and it's more durable than traditional written or archaeological sources. Um, Monica Green goes as far as to say that molecular genetics has the power to reconstruct a history of material existence at a level that no other kind of historical source or method can reach. Um, I would say it can offer insights into individuals' physical biography, too. Uh, For example, it might be possible to determine whether and how individuals in a burial site were related to one another, Um, and this can be kind of supplemented with data or findings uh, from archaeology and history that can be used to develop new interpretations of things like kinship structures uh, in these kinds of societies. Also, think about those wonderful facial reconstructions you may have seen in like National Geographic magazine. That particular field is called reconstructive archaeology. And what happens is researchers take a CT scan of a skull and then a 3D printer makes an exact replica of the scan's measurements. Then a plasticine clay model is sculpted by hand to reflect bone structure and tissue thickness based on the individual's origin, their sex, their estimated age of death. But it's DNA that can reveal the color of hair, skin, and eyes. And these three details were previously speculative. So in the event that no readable DNA is retrieved, genome studies of ancient populations can provide reasonably um, accurate estimates in, in, in their place, but it's obviously less accurate than, than, than having readable DNA. And just the other day, um, workers at Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris uncovered a mysterious sarcophagus dating, I think, to the 14th century. Uh, it was featured on the news a few nights ago. Um, they're repairing Notre Dame after the, the fire a few years ago, and they're already talking about the possibility of genetically identifying its occupant. That's awesome. Uh, I'm, I'm a fan.
0: I'm a big fan, Um, and that's a pretty damned convincing argument for taking a genetic approach to anthropology or or history, Um, but let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater just yet. Um, Archaeology is still obviously highly important. Uh, For example, genetic analysis will tell you nothing about, say, the way certain tools were used, uh, whether or not a certain people rode horses. Um, whether they had fire, did they wear clothes? Uh, what gods did they believe in, etc. Only um, anthropologists can hope to answer those questions. Of course, they can't answer all of them, but they they can use clues to um, to give us educated guesses on them, and sometimes they can say definitively. Um, so, tell me more. Tell me about some of the ways that um, sort of taking a biological approach to human history might be too problematic, too simplistic or problematic? Mm,
1: okay, um, well, its reception has certainly been mixed and uh, probably speaks to the history of disciplinary misunderstanding and mistrust, you know, between the humanities and the historical sciences, as well as between social or human scientists and natural scientists. Um, interestingly, it's archaeologists who have been traditionally more open to it because... Um, They've always worked with material sources and are said to be more open to scientific methods. Um, Historians tend to be concerned about the social and political implications of genetic evidence and interpretation in history, um, especially concerning human population studies.
0: Okay, well, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I guess if you think about it, uh, genetics would be most useful in areas where we know the least, I guess. If all we have to go on is a tiny bone and nothing else, then the DNA of that bone could reveal heaps of information that um, we otherwise would have never had. Uh, However, if we already know the language, uh, religion, traditions, clothing, food, etc., of a certain people, and a geneticist comes along and says, "Uh, actually, those people that you thought they were, they actually are not at all genetically who you thought they were. They probably came from a totally different... Area you know maybe it suggests some new migration uh, theory that needs to be you know reworked and fit into the grand theory that they had before, so you can imagine a few uh, eyebrows would be raised after that
1: yeah, generally speaking, people kind of put the problems of genetic history into two different categories, and the first sort of focus on technical issues. Um, historians doubt its scientific value, they claim that despite all the advantages that we 've mentioned. It doesn't provide the, you know, quote-unquote, magic bullet of explanation uh, due to problems such as uneven sample distribution or contaminated samples, um, and as a result, proper procedures for sample collection have become an issue of growing importance. And the second problem of genetic history is also, you know, the way the research is organized and conceived. Um, the objects of study, the research methods of historians on the one hand and biolog- biologists on the other are very different. Um, For example, historians don't conduct controlled experiments. Biologists uh, uh, don't routinely use critical methods to study archival documents or artifacts. Um, It's been said that many genetic studies take a sequence-first, historicize-later approach, um, in which researchers discover some shift in the genetic makeup and the inhabitants of a region, for example, and then postulate a historical event that might be responsible for the demographic change. Um, And historians insist that to be useful, it is imperative that genetic studies are grounded in a historical and archaeological context. Hmm. Uh, I'm afraid I have to disagree to some extent
0: with historians here. Um, I am very strongly against forming a theory first and then sifting through evidence to make it fit your theories. I'm especially against throwing out evidence that doesn't fit into the puzzle as well. Um, I know historians are not exactly suggesting this. Um, I mean, probably in their minds, they're far from suggesting that. But I would be very, very wary of going down that path. Um, I think it's important to start with the evidence and abandon all theories until you can find one that really incorporates all the evidence, um, or at least doesn't uh, throw out any evidence or contradict evidence. Um, How do you feel about that?
1: Um, I think historians are just skeptical of any attempt to define human populations in terms of genetic propensities uh, or to ascribe human behavior to genes because it comes across as sort of imperious or deterministic. Um, And this kind of risks, I imagine, they fear ideological or, or essentialist or reductionist uh, interpretations of history. They're probably concerned that an individual's genetic makeup might be used interchangeably with his or her ethnic identity and prefer to see ethnic groups such as, what have we got? The Lombards, Anglo-Saxons, Vikings, and Celts, for example, as more fluid categories. Um, and um, probably they'd rather that ethnogenetic studies establish probabilistic relationships um, between different uh, historical interpretations. In fact, occasionally it's the historians who who accuse the geneticists of cherry-picking facts from history that fit their hypotheses uh, built from the DNA findings. Um, And when the results of such findings are published in the media, they're often accepted at face value. It sort of reminds me of the genetic determinism and critical race theory debates um, at large and controversy surrounding individuals like Charles Murray or Robert Plumman and Catherine Page Harden.
0: Yeah, I do recall that same uh debate around um Charles Murray's uh The Bell Curve. I think a book he a book that came out um what in the early mid nineties or so. Um as I recall it, it was quite a controversial book. Uh because it led to a sort of a refueling of the fiery debate around the nature of the main causes for uh, inequality in the United States, uh, specifically along um, sort of racial and ethnic lines. Um, Murray asserted in his book that uh, essentially, and I'm sorry, I'm oversimplifying this, but he critics will agree that he asserted that uh, Jews, East Asians and whites essentially score higher naturally on IQ tests Um on average, than than Latinos, Blacks, and other minorities. And that, uh, as a result, helps explain why uh, the former ethnic groups, so Jews, East Asians, and Whites, um, tend to have a better education and more wealth and so on and so forth. Um, Sound controversial to you? (laughs) Yeah, just a tad. (laughs) Just a tad, right? Um, So critics of Murray, uh, to put it briefly, uh, argued that not only that his science was flawed, for example, that IQ tests are not geared to judge everyone equally, um, they are very Western oriented, um, but also that the uh, intelligence is only a tiny part for the explanation of wealth inequality today. Um, you know, the massive inequality and the increasing inequality that we see. Um, the critics would suggest it's, th- it's things more like um, how wealthy your parents were, where were you born, uh, incentive incentives sort of naturally existing within society, um institutional racism, et cetera, et cetera. Those are all much bigger pieces of the pie chart um of explanation. Mm -hmm. So anyway, we'll let the listeners follow up on that one uh on their own if they're really if they're feeling extra polemical today.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a rabbit hole you could easily you could easily uh fall down. Um we'll keep it focused on the role of genetics in in history. And uh, I have in front of me actually a book, and it's called Genetics and the Unsettled Past, the Collision of DNA Race and History. And um, in it, the authors maintain that modern genetics um, not only influences our thinking about the past, but rather that it has, I'm quoting here, real effects in the present by impinging upon the rights of groups within a nation state or redefining the boundaries of kinship and nationality and that blood, rewritten as genes, provides powerful frames for kinship and identity, race and culture, history and the human future, um, end quote. So that's to say that these new genomic categories provide a scientific underpinning and a renewed authority to notions of race, caste, um, population and nation. And this is really where the subject of today's conversation, I feel, intersects with that of our previous episode as problems of the past are often conflated with the question of the ethnic identity of modern populations see now that i'm
0: not so sure about um i think people have had extremely strong notions of uh, race caste uh, population and nation uh, for a while now (laughs) uh you know certainly for the last hundred years Um, And furthermore, most people who really care about drawing thick lines between uh, races and populations, those are typically not the same people that read up on the latest scientific research with an open mind. Um, However, I could see how perhaps um, actors at the state level could use uh, some of the latest genetic research to reinforce their sort of racist policies.
1: Well, apparently the tendency to explain the distribution of genes according to the assumed patterns of behavior of certain peoples and societies is is quite common in ancient DNA studies. And these assumptions go back to historical or anthropological or archaeological models, and some of which are flawed. And inevitably, you know, you're going to run the risk of ending up with conclusions that not only accept as given the existing historical narratives, but might even confirm um, poor versions of them. Uh, To paraphrase biological anthropologist Alan Goodman, Genetics needs anthropology to think through the localness, partiality, instability, and context of genetic information, um, so to, to help fashion its questions and to make sense of its results. Well, it's no surprise then
0: that the rise of DNA testing in commercial uh, genealogy has cultural and political implications uh, and is reshaping understandings of group identity within and
1: across uh, cultural and national boundaries then yeah exactly and as i stated at the beginning of this episode i'm particularly fascinated by how information gleaned from genetic ancestry testing provided by personal genomic services such as 23andme uh with with, with whom i i did my test ancestry.com and my heritage is used in the construction of individual identities um And these have been termed biohistorical narratives uh, that are bound to um, cultures of remembrance. I think that's a term that was coined by a a professor at the University of Lucerne, uh, Marianne Sommer, uh, that trace historical roots and places of provenance as laid down in the historical record of our genetic heritage. And in her book, History Within, she makes the case that interpretation of gene sequences like our interpretation of other historical evidence inevitably tells a story laden with political and moral values um what prompted you to take the 23andme test him
0: um personally it was just out of uh, curiosity really just the, just curious to know uh where do i come from and especially americans like to know these kind of we always uh <laughs> We know we're not uh, we're, we're not native to the Americas, so we're like, hmm, where am I really from? Uh, so I think that's why that's part of the reason why th- this uh, test is super popular in uh, American Canada. Um, but uh, anyway, I, w- I just want to say I agree with uh, Professor Summer there. Um, I think that was well put. But I guess just as a caveat, haven't people always kind of a- associated moral values with ancestry, like um, you know the artistic and callous Frenchman comes to mind, or the stern methodical German um, Italians are gifted in the kitchen or uh, Irish people have lots of babies, Mm. Um, that that sort of thing. I think these stereotypes predate genetics. Um, But if anything, I think these, actually, I think these genetic tests might be uprooting some of these old stereotypes rather than reinforcing them sort of maybe some anti-Semite discovers that he's like a quarter Jewish or something. Um, Anyway, i i also paid for actually the the health information side of the test uh and it turns out um i'm more likely to develop lung cancer and gout <laughs> uh, than the average joe like especially gout i think i was significantly more likely to develop gout than the average joe um so i had better lay off all that uh that meat consumption and drinking and smoking huh
1: i shouldn't invite you out to watch the rugby after we we were done recording, so <laughs> uh gout that's funny um, I denied access to my sample for everything but the ancestry report and um, call me old fashioned but i'd prefer not to know how i how I may die um, In fact, that reminds me of another concern people have about these kinds of tests the notion that once DNA is thereafter kept on on a on a database. As far as i 'm aware, however i didn 't authorize any of twenty three and me 's um, requests for any additional services, so I think they had to destroy the sample and uh, it wasn 't used in medical research, et etc, et cetera et cetera. You were just thrown in the database there, and then that was it yeah, yeah but <laughs> but you have to read, you have to read for anyone listening actually who 's thinking about doing one of these services when you 're installing the app on your phone, read those. Um, permission requests carefully because if you're kind of hasty like me often you'll just <laughs> foolishly <laughs> accept 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 just to get to the to the interesting part but in this case please don't read it carefully and uh, deny if you don't feel comfortable with what yeah, you're
0: yeah what is it i saw some article that said if you read all of the legal agreements that you accept like the average smartphone user read them all it, w- it would take like uh, three years per year to, like, read them all, you know?
1: I, ac- I actually had to uninstall the app and try again because I was lazy and I just wanted to get to recording the sample and entering my data. And my girlfriend uh, chastised me for it, so I had to, you know, she was right, wise, of course. Wow, uh, yeah. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah, I guess it's not, not the same as installing the next version of iTunes. No, exactly. No. You know,
1: <laughs> it's something you'd regret. Well, anyway, according to my Ancestry report, which, you know, I received, what, three months later, I'm pretty homogenous uh, like you Tim. I'm 99.8% European. Of which I'm 98.4% British and Irish. You're kidding. And 0.8% Eastern European and 0.6% Scandinavian. And curiously I'm I don't have what what did you have? Southeastern. Yeah, I actually South had Asian. I
0: had so I had uh, one point nine percent South Asian. So not yeah, not okay. Nothing.
1: That's yeah. That's uh, I curiously I had zero point two percent Iranian Caucasian and Mesopotamian, which I suspect is explained by the westward expansion of Indo European populations in the Neolithic. At least yeah. that's my that's my sort of. Intuitive, uninformed, uh, yeah, uh, interpretation of that. Yeah, um, I remember reading something like that too. Yeah, yeah. Mm, sure. Um, but in fact, my results were a lot more homogenous than I than I believed they would be. I thought, like you, I would have perhaps more Scandinavian, um, maybe maybe more kind of French or German. And, uh, because my name, my surname is Blackwell, it's a pretty English surname. And I know a lot of Blackwells came to Ireland in the 17th century with Oliver Cromwell, uh, for our shame, <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't share that often. Um, <clears throat> but of course, because your surname is your, is your father's name, typically, um, you kind of have this kind of misconception that that is your, you know, that is the most important kind of heritage you have, but of mm. course it's just one thread among many others. Yeah. And, uh, yeah the the majority of my DNA it appears is uh, is is grounded in western Ireland, mm. which makes sense on one level but it's it's a little different to what i expected um, yeah it's
0: like if you go back three generations you're already looking at like sixteen different lines yeah, of yeah. genealogy it's, it's
1: it's unreal um but I asked myself what does it really mean to be ninety eight point four percent british and irish yeah um, <laughs> that's
0: strange yeah well uh I actually you mentioned that and I, and I looked into it uh, a little bit because when you said that, uh, uh, well, when I read it in the notes, um, it actually reminded me of, uh, an episode of the Colbert rapport. Um, if there are any Americans listening. You might remember that before he went, he got the big late night spot. He had his own show, um, Stephen Colbert, and he brought up a then recent study. This was probably around 2010, 2011, something like that. And it was a, uh, then recent study claiming that there are no meaningful genetic differences between british and irish people what a headline that is i mean it's clearly like a headline to grab to to us uh, mm. get people clickbait riled yeah. up yeah <laughs> um so i couldn't find the clip unfortunately i tried to find it but um i did some research into it and it turns out that while there is a kernel of truth to it you have to go back a very very long time for that to be true um it is true that modern British and Irish folks share the same genetic sort of baseline group um like sort of these people that came from uh, I believe northern Iberia um, after the last ice age right um but you know the with the arrival of the celts as you said before celts vikings anglo saxons normans um that changed everything uh you know that that made it so that the the British and Irish isles uh have Quite a, uh, a checkered uh, genetic makeup now, um, and in hindsight, that seems pretty obvious. So, so although there are definitely some genetic differences today, um, the, the British and Irish do do descend from the same uh, original prehistoric stock of people that I mentioned. Uh, probably a Basque-speaking people that didn't even have to sail to the to the to Britain and Ireland. They just had to uh, walk on walk to Doggerland, which because it was connected to Europe at at that time, so. Um, but I was thinking afterwards, like, I guess you could just say that about almost any two peoples. Like, if you go back far enough, even Chinese people and Italian people share the same sort of ancestors that come from Africa, right? So
1: Yeah, I think you mentioned that, too, in the last episode. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. There's very little genetic variation between Britain and Ireland. That's why the algorithms um, are more likely to mistake the two. In fact, I just thought of a, a great book I have at home. It's called The Origins of the Irish by... Uh, published by Thames and Hudson, written by the distinguished J.P. Mallory. And oh, he goes into this in so much detail. It's fascinating. I, I kind of wish I had thought of it earlier, but sure, there you go. We only have time for so much anyway. Yeah. yeah.
0: Okay. Well, um, apparently across the industry, uh, estimates of where an individual's ancestors lived can differ significantly uh, from company to company. So uh, you mentioned Ancestry.com and 23andMe and so forth. Um, this is apparently because of how uh, consumer genetics companies analyze their data. So, for example, the reference group for Common Ancestry that each company uses, which is changing all the time, can be different. Your results from one company can even change over time as the company signs up more users and gathers more data. Um, none of this means that genetic science is a fraud, uh, only that it has its limitations. Um, it's a limited data set. And the company's... Uh, do have web pages that explain these limitations
1: yeah that's right and even on the 23andme app um, that i used you can find white papers that explain the technical details on how the various features work another limitation i noticed is that the algorithms have to make some guesses about how far back in time your ancestors lived in a particular place Um, and there's obviously a margin of error there and according to my ancestor timeline that's what it's called my most recent eastern european and scandinavian ancestor dates back at least five generations so apparently i had (laughs) apparently i had a third fourth fifth or sixth great grandparent who was 100 percent eastern european who was likely born between 1740 and 1830 and my scandinavian ancestor may have gone further back and was likely born between 1710 and 1830.
0: That's nutty, yeah. It's like, I wonder how they figure out you had one uh, ancestor that was 100% as opposed Mm. to two that were 50%.
1: (laughs) I don't know. That I would have to dig deeper into to find out. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, if a geneticist
0: were here, they would be like, well, it's because of this, you idiot. Um, But uh, anyway, so... (laughs) (laughs) The the popularity of these uh, ancestry DNA tests might be be responsible for some of the uh, misconceptions about the authority of genetics. Um, Ethnicity testing is... As we said, probabilistic, even though genetic ancestry tests deliver uh, precise percentages about our heritage, the reports are best thought of as estimates based on imperfect data.
1: Mm. The biggest issue with ancestry uh, tracing, as I see it, is the definition of, once again, an ethnicity, which I believe we we talked about last time, too. I mean, what genetics can't determine is um, the membership of a given individual in a given social group, like DNA is not the same thing as heritage so the name my heritage is really a bit of a misnomer yeah yeah
0: well as discussed in our previous episode um ethnicity is is merely an arbitrary delineation of a population's spatial and temporal existence um, DNA ancestry tests sort out our DNA by the geographic regions regions you likely uh inherited from but not everything about our family histories is geographic. There are many dimensions of human endeavor to which the human genome doesn't speak. Uh, these tests don't tell us about all the, the languages our ancestors spoke, the food they ate, uh, or whether they were sort of celebrated or persecuted. That's more for the archaeologist to answer. Uh, they They don't say much about our... The way the ancestors uh, lived or traveled also uh, as you move further back in time in your family tree The possibility increases that you've inherited no DNA from some of your ancestors But this doesn't mean that you're not related to these people So for these reasons many um, are uncomfortable with the idea of heritage as something that needs to be corroborated with DNA evidence
1: Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that because uh, my sister also took the 23andMe test She took it before me. In fact, she kind of gave me the idea to take it and uh I Yeah, I naively thought that we would share more DNA, but in fact, as direct siblings, we share, I can't remember the exact percentage, but it's something like 40, 46, 47 percent of our, our DNA. So, you know, she will have inherited some DNA that I haven't and vice versa. And if you go back further enough in time, there is bound to be an individual, an ancestor um, whose DNA she inherited none of. and And, and, this, and the same applies for me. But we're both equally descended from that person, yet there's just no genetic evidence of it. Yeah. Um,
0: Yeah. That's probably something they don't don't advertise much, but they have to mention it. (laughs)
1: Um, Well, I suppose applying, you know, labels is really a matter of historical interpretation. Um, And really, if something as trivial as the five-minute children's video that we discussed in the last episode... um, representing a, uh, a black Roman in Britain, or to claim that classical sculpture was polychrome, as we discussed at length, uh, can inflame the culture wars, uh, so too will any genetic study that touches on notions of race and ethnicity. And um, Neville Morley, the professor of classics, or a professor of classics and ancient history at the University of Exeter, whom I cited in our previous episode, uh, whose blog I, I, I enjoy reading, um, he explains that the DNA analysis of the modern British population shows little trace of African, Mediterranean, and with the exception of Orkney in the North, Viking, or Norman heritage. But this one data point doesn't overturn, according to him, the preponderance of historical evidence that shows these invasions did indeed happen, simply that they didn't have much impact on the genetic makeup of the modern british population and that's the historian's job to speculate um, as to why that might be yeah that's
0: that's a tough one like the invasion happened and presumably the invaders didn't just pop in for lunch and and leave but yet their genetics are not showing up the way you think they would mm. so that's really interesting um well, yeah, I guess genetic evidence has to be considered uh, in the context of all other evidence.
1: Yeah. yeah, and it's also important, I think, that we overcome those divisions that I mentioned earlier between the social and biological sciences and, and forge a more interdisciplinary approach. Um, I've got a, a nice quotation here, I think, um, that sums up really the, the challenge uh, for historians. Uh, and this comes from the American Historical Review, um, The challenge for historians is to come to grips with genetic discoveries while recognizing that historians have an ever more important role to play in an era when biology holds sway as critics of the tendency of science to universalize and decontextualize human behavior, as discoverers of patterns in human behavior and changes in human bodies that can reshape scientific thought and redirect scientific research, and as champions of history as a humanistic mode of inquiry. And geneticists for their part must realize that the effectiveness of their research is limited unless they access reliable historical information and and understand how a historical argument may or may not explain the genetic data Um, according to patrick geary a historian at princeton's institute for advanced study who's using dna to track barbarian invasions during the fall of the roman empire no source speaks for itself every kind of source must be interpreted and that we are only at the beginning of how to properly interpret the genetic data. And uh, according to Joe Pickrell, a geneticist and the CEO of uh, GenCove, a company that sells genetic testing hardware and software to other companies, um, genetic information is valuable, but it's never going to be on its own definitive. Uh, yep, yeah, that about wraps it up.
0: Um, well put. On that note, uh, thank you for listening to this episode of the Polemical History Podcast. Tell us what polemical history you'd like to hear discussed next on Instagram or Twitter. Our handle is at polemicalcast, P-O-L-E-M-I-C-A-L. Alternatively, you can email us at polemicalcast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps. Thanks.